morning, everybody, and welcome to this, which is the first Connect or Conversation of 2019. Um, I'm really excited about this conversation. Um, Connectal, in case it's your first time on, is a brilliant platform for hosting conversations, um, building connections and building communities. And we're really happy if you want to take a look around the platform after the webinar. Um, in a second, I'm going to ask my brilliant guests to introduce themselves. But first, welcome to everybody who's attending live, um, live on the Zoom platform. Um, some of you may be on Facebook Live, I think. Um, and also to those of you who are um, re listening to the recording. Um, so today's subject, um, regenerative leadership, is a massive subject. So I'm just going to put a few um, little boundaries around the subject to explain why I'm particularly interested in it. And uh, then I'm going to hand over to my guests to introduce themselves. Um, so regenerative and leadership are two words for me that I think are really important for the future of business in two aspects. And the first aspect is that I deeply believe that we have a need to give rebirth and regeneration to the best qualities of the human spirit um, that, that we can do through business. And the other, I think, very obvious context is our need when we look at things like the Stockholm Resilience Center's planetary boundaries that we have exceeded in many ways, is to consider how we can um, design business and design cultures in a more regenerative way. And I think we need a really new kind of leadership to do that. So those are the subjects that we are going to explore today. So let me, without further ado, in, ask my speakers um, to introduce themselves and to give us maybe one to two minutes, Max, about their own personal feelings and, and experiences around regenerative leadership. So um, I'm going to start with you, Kenneth, if I may. Um, Kenneth Mickelson, who is the author of The Neo-Generalist, um, a book that when I read it, um, I felt as if I had come home, that someone finally understood who I was in business. Kenneth. Thank you so much, uh, Ginny, and thanks for the, uh, for the invitation. So um, when, I, when I normally have to present myself, I always tell people I live in more than one world. Um, and the next following question then is, so what do you mean by that? Um, well, I, I help, basically, I help leaders live um, informed and meaningful lives. Um, and also wrestle with some of the big questions in the world. So who am I? Where do I belong? Uh, where do I want to go? Um, what's important to me in my life? Um, what kind of legacy do I want to leave behind? Um, I do that in various ways. So I'm a writer, I'm a speaker, um, I design very big um, leadership development programs for primarily large uh, international organizations. Um, and then I spend quite a lot of time on the thinking um, and trying to make sense of the world in order to be able to also somewhat help people um, gain clarity. Uh, and I think part of what I do is to give people hope. Um, so that's the short introduction. Fabulous. So ho hope is something that's very needed. Um, Katie, can I go to you? Yeah. <clears throat> sure, thank you. 
Thank you, Jenny. Thank you to uh, um, everyone on, on this uh, call. Wonderful to be in contact. And my work is with the B Corp movement. B Corps are businesses that are trying to do more than just make profit. They're trying to really make um, the, the focus of how they operate in, to be as closely related to the impact that they create, both on people and, and on, our, on our planet. Um, with the same rigor that they uh, look at their financial returns. And um, it's a very exciting movement. It's a global movement. It's now been running for 11 years. Um, and uh, we started in the UK three years ago and have a, a, a big community, an ever-growing community of businesses uh, who are using this approach and who are creating a different way of doing business. Um, I'm actually just about to move over to the Europe, uh, B-Lab in Europe. So I'm looking forward to uh, getting to know another of our panellists, Ryan, who you're going to introduce in a minute, from Patagonia, another a absolutely leading B Corp. Um, and yeah, for me, regenerative, uh, I mean, I would say regenerative leadership, leadership, just to start with, I don't think necessarily has to, as we all I'm sure know, is not about just the person in the, in the top seat, by any means, it's about leading your own thoughts and your own destiny in whatever role you play, wherever you are. Um, and I do think, I, I, I love the way you frame this, Jenny, because I think you're absolutely right, that thinking about reconnecting with the elements of ourselves that enables us to create a new set of outcomes, a new way of being that serves everybody is what I'm really excited about being involved in and why I'm, I'm so passionate about the B Corp movement. Thanks very much, Katie. So I'll go to you, Ryan. Um, it, it, Ryan is in Amsterdam in Patagonia's headquarters in Europe to introduce yourself. Thanks, thanks for having me here. Excited to join this panel. And uh, so my name is Ryan Gellert. I'm the general manager of Patagonia in Europe, the Middle East and Africa, based, as you mentioned, in Amsterdam, bouncing around the region quite often, originally from the US, uh, been in this role and with Patagonia for about four years and uh, spent uh, the last 20 years working in the outdoor industry. I think this topic is a really interesting one. and. Uh, a lot of dimensions to it and i think just to riff off uh, katie's comments i think that it's it's about trying in my mind for at least here at patagonia to more than just embody a certain type of leadership in the most senior leadership positions but to really embed that deeply in the culture of the organization where people are very present very engaged very aligned with the mission of the organization and i think as importantly as anything they're in a position where they feel that they don't have to sort of pretend to be their professional self during uh, business hours, but instead they can kind of be very comfortable, engaged, being who they are. I, th I think that's something that we're definitely going to explore in the conversation. So last but absolutely not least, Gina, could I ask you to introduce yourself? Thanks very much, Jenny and Tamara, for having me. It's, it's great to be on the conversation. Uh, so I'm Gina Hayden. Um, I have a great love of uh, developing conscious leaders or regenerative leaders in business and beyond. Um, I work uh, out of London. I work globally with um, a, a range of organizations and in a number of different industries in leadership development, similarly to Kenneth. Um, I, whether I'm doing leadership programs or, or uh, uh, coaching their, their leaders, et cetera. Um, and I'm really interested in... Um, how do how do these leaders think these regenerative these conscious leaders how do they think how do they see the world um and i was very interested a few years ago in in decoding 
how they operate um, and, and, and how they view um, the world and how they make decisions in business um, uh, and how they run their businesses and also what got them there. So that my belief really, my, my love and my passion is how do we decode this and then enable ourselves to develop more of those kinds of leaders in organizations. So um, similar to Jenny, who's, who's writing a book about this, I wrote, uh, and to Kenneth, I wrote a book about this a few years ago um, called Becoming a Conscious Leader. And um, I really, I love this conversation because how we can get to think about having more of these sorts of leaders in business, I think, is a very important question. Thanks, Jenny. Thank you. Um, just to say to everybody who is on live, um, if you have any questions that you'd like to put in the chat box, please do go ahead. We hope to have some time towards the end at the top of the hour to bring one or two of you on um, live to ask your questions if you feel brave enough and you'd like to. Um, so let's, let's begin. Um, I have a couple of um, interesting sort of descriptions of what regenerative um, is that I sort of like to read out and it's the definitions of regenerative um, are to, to improve a place or system especially by making it more creative and vibrant um, to undergo renewal and invigoration to be formed or created again to be reborn or converted to restore something to a better, higher, or more worthy state. Um, and if I think of the word also leadership, which comes originally, I think, in the mid 12th, 13th century from a Germanic background, which meant um, to go, to walk, to go on a journey. Um, I'm wondering what you feel it is that we need to renew in business, that we need to give birth to in terms of the kind of people that we need um, to come through in business, to create the new kinds of businesses that can participate in a more regenerative world. Um, so who would like to kick us off? Okay, now, now I've got um, you all thinking. I, I can hear you ticking and whirring away there with that question. So Ryan, I think you're away. Sure. Um, yeah, it's a great question. There's a lot there. I think, you know, maybe in over simplistic terms, I would say, well, first of all, I think we're a little bit of a unique company. So, I, you know, my answers will be framed kind of from a Patagonia point of view. But when you have a company that I think in many ways is much a sort of a cause or a movement, disguised as a company as anything else and you have a founder who remains the owner who is committed as Yvonne Chouinard the founder and owner of Patagonia is to trying to use the business to further our mission to help save our planet I think it creates some pretty clear um, incentives and it gives you kind of a safer space than perhaps in a lot of larger publicly traded organizations but I think for us it's really about empowering employees to contribute directly and indirectly in what the mission of this organization is and understanding that we don't have the answers to the problems that ail us and if we're going to have any shot at uh, making positive contributions it's going to come from using every tool that we have available and one of the most valuable is our employees and so i think it's really creating an environment where people not just feel like they have clarity of mission and not just feel like they have the opportunity to participate, 
but where there's a lot of really clear available on-ramps for their participation. I think that's something that we've worked for, for you know, the better part of our 45 year history in doing our best to create. Yeah, I, you know, I, I think that's in, that certainly rings a, um, true with me. I was lucky enough to work for Patagonia in the 80s and 90s, um, you know, at, when it was de, de, really starting to develop that mission and put those stakes in the ground to say who and, and what it would be. And I think Yvonne um, really, as a leader, it embodies a lot of those qualities in the way in which he he, he actually he actually lives and you know I think it, it's quite interesting when you look at a company like Patagonia that started that 30 40 years ago um, and, and built it into its DNA essentially is is how does an organization that built itself on very different paradigms on command and control stakeholder shareholder models how does it incorporate that kind of embodied leadership um, into its culture and, and, and whether that is in fact even possible? Yeah, I think there's, you know, there's a number of things that we do. I think that the question that you asked in one form or another is one I get asked quite often speaking at events, which is uh, you know, maybe the more cynical part of me boils it down to, Hey, what's the top three things we can do to sort of bottle some of this magic. And I think, I think the reality is, is there isn't a couple of simple things. I think that what has proven very effective for us through good times and bad is a really consistent and increasing belief that this is why we exist and that we're going to continue to try to find ways to empower, encourage our employees to participate in that. And I think that, you know, it's a long winded way of saying I haven't really figured out four years of being here what the shortcut is. Um, but I think whether it's offering environmental internships to employees who have been with us for a year, they're fully paid. They can go away for up to eight weeks and, and work with organizations or it's our giving through 1% for the planet or it's the number of NGOs and other thought sort of leaders and people participating in the community that we bring into our offices um, just to share their story, um, whether we fund them or not, or hosting tools for grassroots activist conferences every 18 months where we build capacity and capability and have our employees participate in that, you know, I can go on, but those are, it's just a lot of small things that mm. we commit to try to build the culture that we think empowers and enables us to accomplish our mission. I think there's something really important that you mentioned there that I'd like to ask um, Kenneth and Gina to comment on there, which is not knowing the answers and, and living the questions together in terms of, you know, how we create leaders of the future. Because I think in, in the past, um, the notion of leadership was, and certainly I think was for me, that you had to be right. You had to know the answers, that your job was to, um, you know, perhaps even be highly paid to have the answers. Um, and, and I wonder if that is one of the key challenges around how we um, help leaders to emerge is that they are emerging into an environment where there is a huge amount of uncertainty and that learning to live with that uncertainty and be a leader in times of uncertainty is, is key and critical. So Kenneth, I wonder if you have something you'd like to contribute there. 
Yes, but I think I, you know what I can I just maybe go back to your first question because I think I think it, there's a connection there. Um, you know, every generation in in, in 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 human history has a set of narratives that inform and shape and guides our uh, our actions. Um, I think in the Western world, I mean, the predominant narratives are those of growth, uh, profit. It's about specialization, reductionism, uh, mechanical thinking. It's about hierarchies. Um, and it's about consumerism as, as well. Um, I mean, those are narratives that we inherited from the industrial age. And, and they still serve as management principles in so many companies today. Um, the, when, you are, when, you're, when you're then asking about, you know, how do you live with the uncertainty, I think... We are somewhat entering an age of understanding. So, what do I mean by that? Well, we are um, we're looking for a new, new narrative for the twenty first century, I believe, um, and we're we're looking for a new sense of direction at the same time. Um, it's about wayfinding. It's about uh, dealing with the ghost of the past, I would say, um, and. In order to do that, I mean, of course, we don't always have the answers for where to go. Um, so maybe the best example I can give is that, um, you know, in our book, The New Journalist, we talk about living in white, in white with white noise. The sort of in-between space uh, on an old FM radio where you're trying to look for a new channel. Being able to live in that space, I think, um, requires several things. Um, one of them being that you have to have a really firm understanding of what, what is important to you in life, because that's what gives you the firm uh, grounding to stand on. Um, so I think that's important. It's also important for not losing yourself when there is so much uncertainty. Um, at the same time, dealing with um, uncertainty, um, it is human nature. And, and I think we don't have to be that scared to actually do that. Um, so I, I think it ties in with, with, with being courageous, not being so fearful, um, and having a sense of imagination. So I think curiosity is very important if we enter this age of understanding, because if without the, the curiosity, we can't look for better answers. Um, so, and that ties in, of course, with, with asking really good questions. I think, um, I think it also ties in with another thing, which is that many of the theories that we have built our society on are becoming increasingly obsolete. So, for instance, before there was a theory of medicine, people were dissecting corpses to find out how does a human anatomy look like. So maybe we also have to be able to actually practice first, to experience first, before or just relying on all theories. And I think that's that sort of, I think that sort of um, captures, uh, you know, the importance of, of of being in this uncomfortable space where we don't have the answers. Um, and uh, I mean, many people talk about it as a liminal state, the unknown, the um, the passage, the rite of passage from something old to something new. Um, and it's an uncomfortable space and we have all been there many times in our lives and especially as a teenager when you're trying to when you're still a child and you're trying to enter the adult world that uncomfortable space where you stand with a leg in both 
you know, both in adulthood and at the same time in, in childhood. Um, so how do you deal with that? How do you deal with not knowing all the principles and answers in that world? And it's basically about applying and, and yourself in that world and learning through practice, I think. I think, I think that idea of practice is, is, is a really interesting one. So can I ask you, Katie and, and, and Gina, um, because I think, Gina, you have worked with a number of B Corp leaders and Katie, obviously you are from B Corp, is how do, how in your experience do leaders of, um, or people who are working within those new and emerging you know, courageous startups, how are they dealing with that, um, that, that, that challenge of creating something in a new space where, you know, they're essentially still in a business environment, which is funded, um, invested in, uh, in a consumerist, um, slightly unconscious paradigm in a way what are the challenges that they face Katie off you go (laughs) sorry um yeah no great question thank you um yeah I think one of the things that I think is really important to think about is not just what the individuals need to have to go through to be able to create their own new sort of paradigm but the framework in which they're operating in. And I think the, the regenerative economy, if that's what we were going to call it, um, needs help from both ends. It needs help from the individuals, clearly, to be able to be brave, as, as um, Kenneth was talking about, and cope with maybe uncomfortable um, trade-offs, if that's how they're perceived, or, or uncertainty, or both. But it also needs, I think, real regeneration in the structure that we've now set up. Because I think sometimes we're asking businesses or leaders in businesses or individuals in businesses to recreate a different set of outcomes and operate in different sort of framework and set of thinking while we still have the old roof on us. And it's a, it, I think that's almost an impossible deal to expect people to, to come away with um, good results. Now, clearly, there are some exceptions that have, have made that work. But that's where I think the startup has this extra sort of um, opportunity because they can create a framework that suits their model. And I, now, certainly, I think increasingly across the globe, different frameworks are setting up hybrid types of organizations which have got the chance to create. Basically, also to build on some of the really good practices of the 19th, 18th, you know, the Medici type of models that we used to have in business, the Quaker models, the um, the, the much more kind of integrated not-for-profit and profit models that used to exist, which we can return to if we've got real clever and broad thinking to go behind it. Mm. So I would say the startup, certainly we see, I mean, we have in the UK about um, a fifth of our B Corp community are what we call pending B Corps, which are businesses that are brand new in their early days of trading. And the first thing they do is to build into their articles of association, their company to DNA what it is they're about and what the purpose of their business is if they start with that they attract the investors with that mindset they attract the employees with that mindset that empowers them they, they have board meetings around meeting those goals so it feels to us as though um, if we can sort of change the make the roof fit better we have a greater chance of empowering the, the, the people within it to be able to create those um, those outcomes thereafter 
Mm. Katie, can I can I riff off the off what you're saying there then? Um, so I, I think um, it's interesting that we often turn our attention to uh, to startups, um, but I'm frequently coming across more organisations who are actually even publicly traded, who who are managing to make some kind of difference to this. And and I think we need to get really practical about this. I I was. Um, I think we can get quite theoretical about what should we do, but really what does it look like on the ground for people to do things differently? Um, and so I think there seems to be a kind of an approach of either inside out change or outside in. Inside out change being um, what are we doing to develop the leaders in our organizations to think differently and see differently? Outside in change being, as Katie's very rightly saying, what are we doing about changing the roof? Um, what's happening with the policies, et cetera? What's happening with capitalism? Those are big questions. But if we get really practical for a minute, I think the shift in leadership in organizations um, it needs to, we, we need to do what we can to help to create that shift from a mindset that's from me to we to the world. How do, how does our leadership in organizations, because we currently exist in hierarchies where in many organizations, leadership is near the top. Um, but even if it's not, how are people, how are we developing people to think not just about themselves, but about uh, how do we lead for each other, but also how do we lead beyond the boundaries of our organization so that we're leading for the world? Um, I'm thinking at the moment about a, uh, a, a company I'm working with. It's a, a global reinsurance company, um, big, you know, fifth largest in the world sort of size, uh, publicly traded. And the CEO of one half of the business has gone through a personal regeneration where he's brought the spiritual side of his life and his CFO, now CEO hat uh, together. And uh, these lived very separately for many years. And he's now gone through this experience of bringing these together and playing it out in his business. Um, and what's happening is the whole organization has gone on a purpose journey, is currently on a purpose journey. He doesn't know what the answers are. So later this week, we're going to Madrid to meet with one of their teams. Um, and he's got the individual business leadership teams going off uh, to talk about how they see the purpose journey, how they individually develop themselves with the, with the help of an instrument called the Leadership Circle Profile, and actually what does it mean together to bring this purpose journey alive in their particular regions. He doesn't know what the answers are, but he knows that the answers will come collectively from the collective intelligence across the organization. So his job there is to create the space for the teams to explore this, to enable the individuals to um, regenerate themselves in the way that they see the world, these leaders, and then ready to let the answer emerge from that whilst he holds the space for that uncertainty for his shareholders and ultimately for, for his boss of, of both streams of the business. And he said what's really interesting is that um, he doesn't know what the answers are, but the groups coming together are so fired up with the purpose and with the answers that they create that actually what's happening is innovation is happening. So back to your uncertainty question, Jenny, you know, innovation is happening. These groups and teams are coming up with amazing answers and actually they're saving loads of money. So he said, interestingly, we're doing more better with less 
but not in a traditional way, which is, um, you know, by cutting costs and making people unhappy and taking jobs away. And uh, you know, he said, actually, we're doing it because there's far less resistance in the organization. People are happier. They're bringing their best selves and actually they're bringing their ideas and people are just running with energy. So the thing is blossoming and they're actually being financially successful, even though he doesn't necessarily sit with all the answers at the top, you know, directing the action as it were. And I think it's just a great example of what are we doing in our organizations? What are we doing on our leadership programs to develop the kinds of leaders who can think in this way and hold space in organizations in this way? Uh, yeah, I think that is a, a fascinating question. And that I like, love that idea of holding, uh, of, of what a leader is today, being somebody that can hold the space for uncertainty, um, but can design a culture within which creativity and autonomy can emerge within that, um, within that uncertainty. Um, there, there was something that, again, particularly that you said there, Gina, which is, you know, he had a moment, the CEO that you're talking about, um, which yeah. I kind of would, would want to explore a, a little bit because that was something that when I've been interviewing what I'd call purpose-led CEOs um, has come up for me a lot, that a lot of these people who are creating um, purpose-led or social and environmental impact businesses had a moment, which was either... Um, driven by um, an, an exposure to a life-threatening condition, the loss of a loved one, sometimes even a psychic moment. And, and that's not necessarily something we'd wish on the entire population of the world to, to, to have. So, you know, I'm, I'm wondering what in practical terms businesses uh, uh, can do, whether they're startup or established, to to activate more of that kind of thinking and experience? And, and is it their responsibility even to do that? Is it the individual's responsibility to do that? Jenny, can I come in on this point? Mm, uh, sure. uh, you know, aware of not dominating, but the, I think it's just, um, I, I think I have a very you know, passionate point about this I'd like to make. Um, when I was doing the research on a similar question to you, what is it that made the changes, it seemed that there were four things. One was um, a, a loss of certainty. So as you say, something happens that takes away their sense of certainty, mm -hmm. our sense of certainty in life. Um, the second thing was like the end of achievement. These, the, the, the people I spoke to sort of just got to the end of achieving everything and thought, is this all there is? I need something more, which wasn't, I mean, it was a dark night of the soul, but it wasn't sort of like a death experience. Um, it just mm. maybe like the recession happened and things changed. Mm. Or sometimes they just had life experiences where the, the experience of life just shaped who they were and, uh, and, and informed their thinking. And some of them were just kind of born with a more advanced advanced evolved way of looking at things so i think it's not just um the sort of dark night of the soul but sometimes there's a range of things that can happen whether businesses need to do this I, I think um the leaders that i spoke to said they used to be very attached to the idea that the role of business was to create this kind of environment for people to develop um, but they've sort of detached themselves from that idea they now provide the platforms for people to do that via the kinds of um, uh, programs they offer or whatever but ultimately it's up to each of us as individuals to decide whether or not we want to develop and I think business uh, can't really have a right to force that but it can certainly offer the opportunity to do that so my view on that 
It, and is that something, um, Ryan, that you you actively offer inside Patagonia? Yeah, it's you know imperfectly. Um, I think that we're a, it's a it's a pretty unique culture, and um, I think what we find globally is that people usually amongst the people that want to work at Patagonia that survive sort of the process of coming into the organization. I think people either bounce off pretty quickly or they stay a long time. Um, in general, we find it's one of two things. Um, I think it's a very entrepreneurial environment. I think it's a very flat organization. I think that um, we also, it's a really tactile culture that we have and that's not for everybody. And I think, um, you know, building sort of networks and uh, being able to tell stories to motivate people to work towards a common goal, I think are really important characteristics here at Patagonia. And so to your question, are those skill sets things we actively seek to develop? They are, but um, as you would imagine, with those being defining characteristics, not great at working in Excel or some of the other things where there's a million and one off-the-shelf solutions. Um, you mm -hmm. know, it's bespoke processes that we develop. I think at the at the core of them of each of them, it's really about bringing the organization together, talking about the things we want to accomplish listening to the the teams and, and what they think are the best ways to do that and then figuring out where there's gaps and where there's some training or support needed and trying to build programs to address that is kind of how we approach it. I thought I'd just jump back very quickly to um, you know the question that you you asked a few minutes ago which was about managing in an environment where you don't necessarily have all the answers. I mean I just say personally I spent five years in China, and if the video is at all accurate, I think you can tell I'm not Chinese. And um, and that was doing a business startup. And so it was really it was sort of forced upon me when you were hiring Chinese people very quickly. And in my case, I went over there alone. Um, and we had some pretty big expectations about what we wanted to accomplish. Immediately, I had to get comfortable with the fact that I don't know how this system works. I don't speak the language. I'm not going to fool anybody on that. I don't know how to do really basic things like buy stationery or pencils or pens or some of these basic things initially. And so it just forced me into a mindset of, look, I know what I can do and I know what I'm here to accomplish, but I'm going to have to lean on everybody all the time to figure out really how to do some very basic things and some more complex things. And I would say I've, I've tried to take that sort of spirit forward. I'm an American living and working here in Europe. Um, there are plenty of people here across the European continent who know this environment and the outdoor industry here much better than I do. And so I just try to try to be pretty humble about the things I can add, but also very comfortable with what I don't know. I think that notion of humble leadership, and I can't, I cannot pull the author of the humble leadership out of my head at the moment. Obviously, I haven't had enough caffeine yet, but I, I, I think. You know, uh, um, for us all as, as individuals, um, you know, trying to find a way to embody those kind of characteristics of curiosity, humility, um, creativity is, it, it is, I think, very important. But um, I, I'd like to also kind of come back um, to this notion of purpose in business, because for me, purpose in, in business is not something new. Having been lucky enough to work with people like Patagonia and Timberland and Virgin in the 80s and 90s, it was what I thought was a normal model for business. It was only when I started to digress out of those kinds of brands that I realized it absolutely wasn't. Um, but but 
um, there was a very interesting article, which I think I only sent to you this morning, that Kenneth brought to my attention in a publication called The Nation about um, purpose um, or, or sustainability or regenerative leadership and regenerative business um, being manipulated within the existing system. So I wonder if you have anything that you would like to share in terms of, you know, there is a degree to which human nature does um, adopt the manufacturing paradigm of mine it, make it, dump it with concepts like conscious business, regenerative business, purpose, their business. Is how do we, you know, how do we differentiate between purpose washing and real and genuine uh, authentic, purposeful leadership? Um, so Kenneth, maybe you, you know, as you brought that article to my attention, you might like to share your thinking on that. Yes, I, um, a couple of years ago, I'm, so I'm part of this um, group of people that meet in Vienna every year uh, called the um, Global Peter Drucker Forum. And I wrote an article called The Purpose Parasites um, about companies actually exploiting um, and making sort of creating this thingification out of uh, um, new terms and then eventually, um, like you said, you mine it and then you eventually dump it, right? So I'm, I'm very afraid that when we talk about being regenerative, that that is also becoming a very used term right now. Um, so I think coming back to your, to your point there, um, purpose, I, I, I mean, is there such a thing as a collective purpose that covers everyone in an organization? I have studied purposeful organizations for more than a decade um, and written extensively about it. So I, and I've seen examples of that. It's not the usual suspects. I think Patagonia is doing a great job, um, but there are also a tendency of constantly uh, using the same cases. And I think there's some sort of a American gate, sort of an American approach to this where it's being sort of um, brought forth by many of the American business schools. So we always hear about the same companies and I have been living and working in India for many years and um, and I see examples in India of companies who do this really well. Uh, most often they are family-run business businesses. Um, so the Mahindras, the Tatas um, and um, and I think what they do really well is that they don't, they don't just take one concept. They actually try to, to make it their own. Um, so Mahindra, for instance, is a federation of companies, of more than 100 companies. And they see their purpose as a unifying flag for a federation, basically. Um, are they doing it perfectly? I'm not, I don't know. I mean, I don't think any company can do that perfectly, <laughs> to be honest. I think it's, uh, I think that's really difficult. I think what we need to focus on is the intentions behind it. Um, and I see that in Patagonia also having a founder that, that's really focused on really essential human values. What does it mean to be a decent human being? And I think that's where it starts rather than it purpose being um, promoted as a, um, you know, content marketing strategy or being taken over by marketeers. And I see that in so many companies today that it's sort of the next shiny thing. 
and everyone runs in that direction and then it becomes meaningless. So how do you, how do you get past that, Katie, in B Corporation? Um, no, I think you're absolutely right. There is a real risk of it. It's the buzzword. And I think it's one of the kind of most talked about topics in business at the moment. So how do we know when it's real or not? Um, and I suppose with the B Corp framework, what we're trying to do is a couple of things. One is actually to help companies navigate this because it is difficult. If you're a, a person of great intention to create a different type of um, culture in a company, and just to go in and do that with no kind of handrail or, you know, um, tools is really not easy and particularly if the company is well developed i'm sure you know gina you've worked with these companies who are really big structures so they need some kind of roadmap and i would say what the tool of the impact assessment that we use for companies is really trying to almost highlight areas throw a bit of a spotlight on different things so you want to run a really meaningful purpose-led company look under the bonnet at all these different aspects so i think that's a helpful way of course all that does is shine a light on things it doesn't necessarily get you but it starts for you to be able to change i think what we would define as success because i mean one lovely example from a really big corporate is um uh, danone who have really looked very seriously at what they're doing in terms of how how they lead their culture and the purpose of the business and um, they recently have a, a acquired a two billion dollar debt from a consortium of banks and this debt is directly, the cost of that credit is directly related, inversely related, to the impact that they're making as assessed through the tool. So um, the more impact they make, the cheaper the, the loan will be. And you can imagine the rift that that can create. You then can start to say, and we've got another company at the moment who I won't mention the name of, but to a big company who is now trying to attach KPIs and then the bonuses to staff according to what progress they've made on their um, on their impact assessment. So have they made some difference? So you start to tie up, I think, the, the individual kind of capacity to make change with the incentives of the business and not have a wedge between them. Um, but Kenneth, I totally agree. You know, this is a much, much more, you know, there's no one size. You can't just import a framework and import a mindset. It's got to be owned and lived in by yourself. But that's where I would say the community and what you're talking about, collective purpose, if you've got a series of leaders or of, of individuals of company collective leaders who are trying to create a difference i think doing it together um we're seeing is massively helpful we have a group who are trying to tackle plastics all the b corps in the uk about 40 of them who really have an issue with they need plastic at the moment in their product to get it to market but we all recognize and that's sustainable so what can they do together which they couldn't possibly do alone maybe they need you know, they need everybody to kind of jump <laughs> together. Um, and so those kinds of um, collaborations built on a, a real deep sense of purpose, I think, is where we can start to see some change. It won't happen overnight, but it's a way of making things go from the individual to the collective. And, and I think there are two really important strands in, in, in there, I think, which, well, there are three, actually, that have come out there. And I think we might just have time to revisit one or two of those, um, which is um, how the structure of a business can help balance out that collective purpose of an organization and facilitate the individual purposes, sense of purpose within it. Um, through motivating individual achievement as well as collective achievement. 
Um, the other point I think that you made, which is really interesting, is this growing sense of um, pre-collaborative um, collaboration between organisations and leaders, um, which is the first sort of real move I've seen away from a competition mindset, which to me goes with the worst elements of capitalism. Not that I'm tra trashing capitalism completely. That's a different discussion. And, and I think that is something that I think is really interesting. And the third element that I think that you brought out there, Katie, is this incredible need for regenerative leadership to embody transparency, that shining of a light, um, whether it's through reporting, uh, whether it's through um, being open and honest in corporate communications about not, as Ryan said, not knowing the answers and living the questions together. Um, so, so I wonder if anybody else um, on the panel would like to sort of contribute anything that they feel is really important to those three pillars that have just seemed to have kind of come together and coalesced here in this conversation. I'd be happy to, uh, to offer a couple of thoughts here, um, particularly on that third point, which is around uh, You know, I think, um, and I'll riff a little bit on that I heard from, from Kenneth and Katie. I think that we're often held up at point about uh, business cases or case study. Kind of a leader on issues of sustainability. I think that is really grossly overused in this day and age. And I think it's also inapplicable to Patagonia. I think that um, if anything, we're a responsible company and that we continue to try to understand the impacts we're having and minimize them. But uh, we're certainly not a sustainable company where we take from the planet only what it can afford to give and renew. Um, and I think one of the one of the you know Vaughn's well known for offering a lot of sort of pithy quotes. I think one of the favorite ones I have, and it's referred to quite often in the organization, is leading a considered life is a real pain in the ass. Um, if you're if you're committed to constantly looking at the impact that you're having and trying to minimize it and share with your employees and your customers along the way what you're learning, it's really challenging, but you've got to have a certain level of not just commitment, but uh, confidence in yourself that your customers can come along on this journey with you and accept both your strengths and your weaknesses. And it's a really important uh, element of how we manage the business. I, I can certainly relate to that from a personal level as the part of me that is a is quite activist in the way I think I approach the world I find myself constantly challenged uh, even on simple things like dear old Facebook it, it is shall I say this or shall I not say this am I being true to myself or am I being a pain in the ass excuse my French sorry um, you know, and I, I had that over the beginning of the new year where a very good friend posted a, something about his enormous meat, piece of meat dinner. And the natural activist in me wants to put a little um, a attachment and a link to um, a, a piece in The Guardian that says the best thing you can do in 2019 for the planet is to eat less meat. And I really thought about it and then I did it and then I felt intrusive and over... So I, I, even in very simple areas of my life, I find um, 
uh, you know, I think we talked earlier on about that, or Gina did, about being that, that conscious struggle in being in different states all the time is, you know, I kind of think if I think in Frederick Laloux terms or co levels of consciousness terms that I operate in a fairly uh, aware way most of my time. But when challenged, I can quickly zip back to the command and control mentality that I grew up with. And I work very hard also to be very considerate and think carefully about my communications. And that's just me on a very simple level, um, you know, managing my own sense of agency and integrity, I find really difficult even in small ways. I can see, I can see people nodding, which either, either that means you all think I'm a complete idiot. <laughs> <laughs> or, or you agree with me? <laughs> um, Jenny, I, 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 I'm nodding in agreement. Um, but I think it's this, for me, and it comes back to your three points as well, a bigger question. Um, you know, on this purpose article that you sent around, um, I, I think how, the question for me is how do we, sorry to quote Gandhi, but like really how do we live the change that we want to see without getting, you know, um, ridiculous about it, but how, how do we live that? Um, and not point fingers at what needs to change out there? Or how do we live that and make suggestions but not be attached to what needs to change out there? Kind of what is our degree of activism? So I think on the purpose um, point, just referring to that briefly, um, it's very interesting to me that people will, and I agree with this, you know, purpose being hijacked um, and then pointed fingers at what is the alternative? Is the alternative that we don't do that and we go back to Milton Friedman? No, it's not. So, um, you know, we have, I think maybe it's a kind of a two steps forward, one step back thing. So I think ultimately our responsibility is how do we choose to live our own lives? I'm feeling this myself. And then how are we a model for what we want to see in the world? And how do we perhaps use social media and the internet to put that out there, but without making other people wrong? And how do we use the internet and all the forms of connectivity to connect with like we're doing on this connector right with people who are like-minded to us and collectively create a paradigm shift where more of us get together to tip tip the scales over to something new um so i'm kind of nodding in agreement with you putting it on facebook i think can we put it out there but not at the same way go well you're wrong for doing that and i'm right for doing this because i think that's where we start you know getting short not that i'm suggesting you did that by the way but i think it's something it's a challenge oh, that no, we I have think in I social media <laughs> i think i definitely did, did did do that and i probably spoiled his his lunch completely um, so i felt really <laughs> dreadful afterwards and I, I actually deleted my comment because i realized oh god you know i've done it completely <laughs> Um, but I, it, just, it just grabbed my, uh, probably because I do an enormous amount of work in the food industry. I was, you know, I was focusing and zeroing in and my own leadership flew out of the window and, and <laughs> was very un, uh, mean and unconscious. Um, but I, and then I, we forgive I, ourselves. I got, yeah, I got what I deserved because, you know, the, the, the gentleman and I, you know, we, we kind of, we, we bat off each other. Um, but just as we're coming sort of to the to the top of the hour, um, 
there, there's something here, a, a quote that I picked out um, that I'd kind of like us to sort of wrap up this conversation around maybe. And it is, you know, I often pick on him, but it is from Fred Leloux, his book in Reinventing Organizations. And he said, the more we learn to be true to our unique self, the more it dawns on us that we are just one expression of something larger an interconnected web of life and consciousness. That realization can be elating, but also painful. We now comprehend how deeply our relationship with life and nature has been broken. We see the foolishness and arrogance of mankind's stance of putting himself above the rest of life and try to find a more truthful and humble place in the midst of it. Um, and I noticed in our chat box um, there are many questions that have gone in there, in there but there was one question that i thought was very interesting um which relates to that and that is you know is our is is our are our varying existential crises that we have around the planet at the moment whether it's climate change or the future of food um is that a stepping off point for activating our sense of individual agency and regenerative leadership. Um, so that's kind of where I'd like us to, to just finish off, if any of the panelists would like to say something about that whole bringing together, which is I think Katie, what B Corp for me does very well, that bringing together of the sense of human agency and building a physically regenerative world. So I'm going to pick on you, Katie, first, because you are from B Corp. <laughs> Katie, you need to unmute yourself. All right, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I think this is work in progress. I don't, you know, exactly as I think Kenneth was saying at the beginning, you know, we we're nowhere near where we need to be and the time frame we've got is so tight. I don't know about you, but as I get older, the urgency is sort of, you know, really um, right in front of us. And so I think the activist in all of us is <laughs> perhaps as we get older, becomes more and more engaged. Um, and I think, you know, what, what you see working in some places is not quite right for others. And we have to be really adaptable and flexible. But I think, Jeannie, you've been talking a lot about the individual at the core of all of this and opening up the opportunities that you know in a large or small structure you can make real massive change um, quite interestingly we have uh, about in across the globe about 50,000 users of the, the impact assessment tool and some of them really they're they're progressing slowly but surely you know they're moving from a score of say 20 points to 40 points and it's all under the radar and nobody would see that and there's no logos or anything around that but actually, if you've got a company of 100,000 employees and you've changed some aspect of your business in a really significant way and you've brought people on board and people have led that change, that's actually, you know, it's all part of what we've got to do. We've just got to somehow multiply it um, very you know, many, many more times across the globe and quickly. And that's, I think, the challenge as to how we all play a part in that. Um, I, yeah. I, board members have a real role to you know, Katie, I, I, um, I, feel, I feel very inspired by what you're saying. Um, and uh, I think, you know, part of the work we did last year was work with the B Corp leaders in Switzerland. Um, and what was so amazing about 
that experience was uh, I normally struggle to find these sorts of regenerative conscious leaders in organizations. There are a few of them, but they feel very, very isolated. Um, what was interesting about the programs we did of bringing together, interesting, the B Corp leaders into a group together was the sense of relief that they felt they were in a room with other people who felt and thought just the way they did. And also the sense of loneliness. And I'm looking and reading the chat. There's a number of people saying um, how lonely they feel and where the other people kind of like them, you know, is it, is it only us? Actually to come together and then to support these regenerative leaders in organizations to find others like them, um, create conversational platforms for discussion, look for examples, um, light small fires in organizations, and in that way, grow the movement, really. I, I think that's part of the work that's got to be done. There's the, 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 there are leaders like us, like us all over the world in all kinds of organizations. At the moment, we feel we're in the minority. How do we go out, find similar people to us, and continue the conversation? Yeah, I, th I think that's absolutely key. You know, we, we have this natural need and sense of belonging. Um, but I, I, I think people that are always on the cutting edge of change are always at risk of resilience burnout. And the, the best way in which to combat that serious resilience burnout is to spend time, certainly to spend time in nature for me, but to spend time with others so that you can understand your experience is not your not just your own that you don't feel so out there on a limb and or, or that you're an alien from another planet which i frequently find myself feeling like in certain organizations in which i can go into um, so i really agree with that gina i think that's that's huge um, so ryan and kenneth is there something that you would like I think um, coming back to your question, Jenny, you know, every life form is unique and it's nestled within other living or larger living systems. Um, I think the, to be regenerative is also the ability somewhat to, um, to see the world through a different lens. Um, and as such, I think it requires education. I think it requires development, maturity, um so my point is that i think learning is the strategy for the time that we live in and it ties in with your point that you need to or that most people um who gone who's gone through a transformation in their life have uh, had experienced hardship um so i think when we talk about uh being able to be in this space i i think learning is the strategy and i think we need to grow this adaptive life perception and an adaptive life perception is sort of a, an affordance. How can you reinvent and renew yourself on a continuous basis? What does it come to, well, how do you do that? Uh, not just in a shallow way. Um, and I think it requires more than lifelong learning. I think it's the obvious answers that, the answer that many people give. Oh, so we need to embrace uh, lifelong learning in a AI future, for instance, automated future. I think we also need to have wide, life-wide learning learning from all different things, you know, uh, from faces, spaces, uh, places, all sorts of things. Um, I think we need to have life deep learning as well. Learning about what constitutes our, you know, what is my value system? How can I understand what is important to me in life? Um, and the way 
the way I see it, I mean, I, I, I've spent quite a lot of time thinking about this and then and applying it in practice. Um, so I think the seven things that I've come up with so far is that we need to focus on health and our living. We need to foc on, focus on clarity, which is our being. Um, we need to focus on mastery, which is our learning strategies. Um, and I think we need to curiosity, which ties in with wondering. Um, and perspective as well, which is tied in with understanding. Um, and then we need to focus on relevance, which is our relation to each other. Um, and then lastly, agility as our thinking, mental flexibility. And there are ways that you can design this. So I use these seven sort of components in every kind of leadership development initiative that I'm involved in. How can you actually help people do those things at the same time? And they're all interconnected. They work together they, um, and you can't separate them. Um, so I think in order to grow this human agency, I mean, that's what you need, need to be able to, to do. Um, and, and leadership in that term is that, well, if you can do it for yourself and constantly renew yourself whenever it's needed, that's great. But you can also be of service to others who need to do that um, and, and be a guidance and have that sort of take upon yourself, that stewardship um, for others. I think that's a, a very beautiful way to think about it. So Ryan, we're right at the top of the hour, so I'm gonna come last to you um, to give us your feedback on that. Um, and we're gonna go, go over by a couple of minutes, so I hope our attendees will bear with us. Yeah, I mean, I, I will keep it short, thank you. Um, I think that, you know, my belief is given what's at stake, um, I think we've really, as, as humans, have lost the right to be pessimistic and I think I think it's really important that we're all engaged in the battle and that's, and I think it's important in doing so to remember where we have strength and it's the things we celebrate in our personal and professional lives. It's the brands we support. It's the lifestyles we choose to lead and the leadership that we provide in doing that. And I, I feel like this is, if you look, if you live in the worlds that many of us do, it feels like there's a lot to build from. If you look into politics today, almost around the world, it's easy to become very cynical and, and that's where we're at. I think that is a that that's a good note on which to end. So I want to thank um, First Connexel for hosting us today, and all of my brilliant panelists, uh, Gina, Ryan, Kenneth, and Katie. I can't believe an hour has flown past, and we could probably carry on talking for the next ten hours. But thank you very much for attending, and and uh, for our attendees, see you for our next Connexel conversation coming up. My next one that I host will be in fact about regenerative education and learning. So I'm going to be exploring more about business education uh, in the future. Thank you all again and see you all again soon.